0: show you a better way you don't have to be another face in the crowd. hi folks this is Jack Speco with another edition of survival podcast As always one man's view of the changing world the changing time and the things that we can all do to live a better life times get tougher even if they don't coming you once again from Arlington Texas today. With episode 539, folks, 539 episodes, we're only 11 away from episode 550, need your help with that, more on that in a second, but today is Wednesday, it's hump day, we've made it over the hump of the week once again. It is the 20, what is it, the 27th of October, the month is almost over, time is marching on, you know there's only like 60 days till Christmas right now? Actually, I think it's a little bit less, 60 days. Kind of kind of sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Let's talk about money. Let's talk about going forward from what we did yesterday. Yesterday, I made all kinds of promises to you, and I only fulfilled half of them. And the really eye-opening, peel-back-the-covers stuff got saved till the day. And it was simply because I was looking at the thing, my outline was still a mile long, and we were an hour in. And I thought, I'm going to lose people if I go for two hours straight. And it's just too long for an individual show. So I pushed it out till today. So now I'm going to make good on this. What I'm going to do today is I am going to teach you how our money was. I told you yesterday how the money is created. I know some of it was a repeat There should have been new stuff for people yesterday, but some of this we've talked about before. Chris Martinson came on before, but I had to lay some fundamental knowledge because today, instead of telling you how money is created, I'm going to tell you how it is supposed to be created and managed, not by my opinion but according to the Constitution of the United States. And I'm going to tell you about fundamental changes that occurred with the installment of the Federal Reserve, two other ones that people generally don't talk about. Everybody, 1913, first thing you think is Federal Reserve. I'm going to tell you two other things that happened in 1913 that went right along with this and why they happened. I'm going to help you today. We are going together, we're going to build a fictional currency to work in a barter economy. We're going to look at using... A piece of paper with a number on it, and maybe ammunition is a currency in a barter economy, and see how that would work. And then we're gonna look at using metals like silver, gold, copper, and other metals, honestly, you could do this with, to do the same thing. And we're gonna understand, what we're gonna do is we're gonna examine building a barter economy. And, <clears throat> let me put it to you this way. When I was in high school, I had to take foreign languages, right? And they said, you need this to get into college. And nobody could tell me why. Why I needed to know Spanish to get into college, to get a degree in something that had nothing to do with Spanish. But when you study a foreign language, you understand the structure of your own. That's what we're going to do with a fictitious economy, a barter economy today, and creating a fake currency. We're going to use it to understand our own. We're going to talk about fixing the current monetary system today. I'm going to tell you why a gold standard may not be the way to actually fix our problem. I'm going to tell you how it can be used to hurt you. I can, I'm going to tell you how, if we went straight to a gold standard right now, how it could devastate the lives of countless Americans. How it wouldn't fix the problem. Because we're going to talk about what the real problem is. I'm going to talk about how what we really need to do is just put things back to the way they used to be. And then I'm going to tell you how it's probably not going to happen that way. And I'm going to tell you what to do about it for yourself. So that's what today is going to be about I hope you really enjoy today's show. This is going to be another time I'm going to say, listen intently. Today's show is going to is going to go into some areas that if you gloss over them, you're not going to really understand the profound impact that they actually have on your life. I certainly can't rehash yesterday's show, uh, so if you haven't heard it yet, you probably want to stop right now, listen to yesterday's show, which would have been episode 538, and then listen to this one. But we will just say where we left off yesterday is we had discussed the fact that the United States individual personal income tax comes up to came up to last year um, about 1.21 trillion, and the cost of the debt on interest was 383 billion, and the cost of new borrowing was 1.1 trillion. So in fact, the entire income tax of the United States didn't fund anything government did. All it funded was new debt and existing interest on debt, so that the income tax exists to service the debt. Let's go deeper into that now as we move forward. And let's understand, first off, the problem with our monetary supply today isn't that the dollar is just backed by debt. It isn't just that the dollar, uh, you know, every dollar is a symbol for debt that we must pay a dollar plus interest back. And that that interest payment and that dollar payment goes to a group of private companies called the Federal Reserve, a group of private banks. It's not just that. It's that the money is supposed to be the public's money, the people's money. The United States citizenry is seen as owners in the nation. We are the stockholders. And when we do more work, we get more shares of stock. When we do less work, we get less shares of stock. When we have a greater share of the stock, we have a bigger controlling Uh, statement on the society. Whether you like that or not, that's the way the system was originally set up. Because if you do have wealth, you have more stability, so you can do more to influence things, even if you don't buy the influence. And that's how it's set up, so that production is rewarded in the United States. Not necessarily that you have a greater say-so in what the government does. Because the government is supposed to be so limited at the federal level anyway, that it shouldn't be possible for people to buy that influence. But, If what you want is a big piece of land, and you want to have a right to private property, and you want to be able to build something for yourself, that's how the system's designed to work. And it still sort of, kind of works that way, because at least we still have money. Without money, folks, you have to understand, money is not evil in itself. If we had no money, at all, there was no money, how would society divide itself up? How would society protect itself? If there was no money and everything was community owned, and there was no way to, to, to tie an energy output to a monetary value, then your right to private property can't exist. You don't own your land. Whoever has got the biggest stick owns your land without money. Understand that as we go forward today. The real problem, though, is that our money supply is not controlled by the public that's supposed to own it. It's controlled by a private group of people, a private entity. That are not beholden to us. There's certain things that the Congress has demanded of the Federal Reserve, that the people have demanded of the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve has said, no, we don't have to. Where did you, there's two trillion dollars on your balance sheet that was created and went out. You gave it to somebody. Where did it go? Forbes magazine and the United States Congress asked that question. The response from the Federal Reserve is it went to numerous financial institutions, banking institutions, and other organizations around the world. Around the world? Wait a minute. This is fact, folks. This is not my opinion. That's what they said. And then they were asked further. Ron Paul questioned Ben Bernanke in, con- in, in, in Congress in a hearing. Tell us where it went. His response was basically just No. I'm not going to, I don't have to. That alone tells you that our money's being controlled by a private organization that's not accountable to you, to me, or to our elected officials. At least not fully accountable. So let's talk about how this was supposed to be done. First of all, in the Constitution of the United States, the specific duties of the federal government are laid out plainly. There's only a very small handful of things that the the federal government is actually supposed to be doing, which means many of the things that they're doing and spending money on today, they should not be doing. Those things are either to be done or not done by the states and the people. And if there was any doubt about it, If there was any doubt about it, the Founders turned around after the Constitution was ratified and added something called the Bill of Rights and installed the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution, which make it abundantly clear. Just in case you didn't understand, if we didn't say you can do it, you can't do it. And if we didn't say you can do it and you can't do it, then the people who can do it, as long as it doesn't conflict with individual rights, would be the states. And your job, federal government, is to make sure the states don't violate the rights we've protected of the individual under the Constitution. And in just in case you don't really get it, the fact that maybe we didn't say people had a right to something doesn't mean they don't have the right. If we didn't say that it was restricted, it's not restricted. I mean, that's the Ninth and 10th Amendments in plain English. So that is the way our Constitution was set up. And what we need to understand as we look at that, that there is one branch of our government, that is supposed to be the most powerful branch that we have. And it is the United States Congress, and it's not really the Congress. I say Congress all the time because I'm talking about the congressmen, the people we call congressmen. And, of course, the other half of the Congress, the Senate, we call senators. When I say that, what I'm really saying is in the House of Representatives, the House, you're one congressional clown that you vote for. Every two years, this guy or lady has to stand election. That person and all of his cohorts, 500 and some odd now, you know, of those guys, are supposed to be the most powerful force in government not to do things, but to prevent things. See, our entire system of government was set up to make the government extremely capable in stopping stuff, but require tremendous cooperation from multiples to make something happen. What I mean by this is, while we do have two branches of Congress, the Senate and the House, and while they, when they make a law, we want a law passed. It has to either originate in the Senate or originate in the House, one place or the other. Once the origination happens and it passes, then they throw it over the fence, so to speak. So the Senate comes up, we want to make a new law that it's illegal for Jack Spearco to, to punch turtles in the face. All right? Jack Spearco's punching turtles in the face. There's no law that says he can't. That's what we want. We want a law that says Jack Spierko. So they can do that. They can they can make a law that says that, and as long as I don't have a constitutionally protected right, and, and no one can make a case for any inherent human right for me to punch turtles in the face, fine. They make that law, and while that law is a bill, I can punch turtles in the face all night. Now I really can't because of the animal cruelty. I'm trying to make this you know engaging, folks. But let's just say I could get away with it right now. And they were trying to pass a law, so I can't. So I can sit there and I can punch a turtle in the face every day if I want to, and they can call me up before Congress and go, hey. Are you punching turtles in the face? And I can go, yeah. There ain't nothing you can do about it. So they throw that law over to the House. The House looks at it and goes, Well, maybe we'll make a few additions to this law. Like I don't know, let's appropriate some money for a few districts to uh, to improve turtle habitat because that's kind of related. And then let's uh, let's 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 add a law that says people have to do something on their taxes, even though it has nothing to the rider, but it's still the t- pu- any jack punch turtle in the face law. That passes, and then that goes up to the govern to the to the president. President looks at it and says, Yeah, Jack Speargo shouldn't be punched turtles in the face. He executes it by signing it into law. Now there's a new law. Now if I punch a turtle in the face, not only is a law said I can't do it, but it specified the punishment I get for punching a turtle in the face. But it takes all three branches to make that happen. But either side of the, the legislature, either side of the Congress can initiate that new law. If the president vetoes it and sends it back, it says make some changes. The Congress, being the Senate and the House, if they both vote a two-thirds majority, or 66%, can override the presidential presidential veto. They see how complicated it is to get the no-punch-the-turtle-in-the-face law into effect. But, again, the, the House and the Senate both have specific roles that they fill. For instance, the Senate is the one who decides whether or not uh, a presidential appointment happens. So, let's say... The president decides he wants to make Jack Spirico a member of the Supreme Court. And everybody, including me, goes, that's a dumb idea. We don't want that. That, That's really not a good place for Jack, right? So everybody's up in arms about it. Now, you start calling your congressman, your member of the House of Representatives, and complaining to him. If his office has any brains, what they're going to tell you is you need to call your two senators, because we don't do that. Right? We just don't do, if you don't understand what this means about money, it's all gonna be incredibly clear in just a second. We don't do that. The Senate does that. Okay? So, that's the Senate's role. It's one of their specific roles in the Constitution. The House has similar roles that are unique to it. And the most important one is every single penny that the federal government spends must originate in a spending bill In the House of Representatives, every stinking penny, the government cannot spend money in any budgetary year without an original, an originated spending bill coming out of the House of Representatives. Which means any stinking thing that a majority of the House doesn't want, they have the ability to put a stop to by pulling its funding. So, when Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, and I'm not, this is not partisan, this is how all of them are full of crap, okay? Every politician is full of shit, and if you didn't believe that, by the end of the day, you're to it's going to be abundantly clear how bad it really is. We would like to stop the war, but Bush won't let us, and he's the commander-in-chief, and even though we took over the House, all they had, I'm not saying they should or should not, I'm just saying why is double talk. All they had to do was say, Mr. President, we're no longer going to fund this war. Here's your new spending bill, there is no money to fund the Iraq war. Zero. And of course you say, I'm not going to sign it. Fine, shut the government down. The House can literally shut down the government in any budgetary cycle by not approving funding. So there is nothing, even once it's made into law, that cannot be held in check by the House of Representatives. Why were they given so much power? Well, think about the way we elect our, re- our officials. A senator goes to, to, to Washington for six years. It's supposed to be the more stable branch of the Congress, the more conservative branch of the Congress, the more willing to stand in the face of pu- general public outcry. This is good for the people. We're going to be here longer. We can, ta- we can weather this storm. The House is supposed to be afraid of the people. It's supposed to be terrified. Every two years, you got to say, hey, did I do good enough to stay? If you didn't do good enough to stay, they throw you out. And this this two-party system where, well, we're stuck with the Democrat, because this is a Democrat district, and we're stuck with the Republican, it's not supposed to be that way. The guy sucks. You're supposed to get a new Republican or a new Democrat and replace him. That's how the system's supposed to work. That's how the founders thought the system would work. Good, bad, or indifferent, the way it is today. Don't read this politically. This is how the system was set up. So, what the. And what we. The other thing we have to understand is how our senators and presidents were elected constitutionally. The senators were not elected by you and me until that magical day of 1913. I believe it was the 17th Amendment that made that change. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm pretty damn sure it was the 17th. And. With the ratification of the 17th Amendment, we changed the way we elected senators. You have to think about the fact that this change, along with the establishment of the Federal Reserve, both happened in 1913. These are such huge changes, earth-shattering changes in the nation, for them to occur at the same time. This would have been like Obama getting the original health care bill that was even worse than what we got, and the immigration bill, okay, that we had a couple of years ago that was terrible, and a cap in tax, all done in its first year, all together, all exactly the way they came up I mean, that's how unlikely this was to happen, because the other thing that happened in 1913 was the establishment of the income tax. So in 1913, in one year, we changed the way we elected a third of our federal government that we elect, because we only elect senators, congressmen, and the president. Everybody else in the federal government is appointed. We changed that. How did we do senators before this happened? Senators were appointed by state legislature. Again, this actually put the power in the hands of the people at a greater level than today. See, people were sold a bill of goods. They were were ignorant to the Constitution by this time. They'd grown complacent. The last of the men that fought and died in wars like the Revolution in 1812 were dead and buried. We've been through our own war, the war between the states, Whereas we call it the Civil War, which it wasn't a Civil War. It was the war between the states. That had ended. Even a lot of the people from that time were starting to go away and pass on. And that, and, and that had changed fundamentally what Americans thought about individual rights, about states' rights, about the Constitution itself. But the Constitution didn't change. It still said the same things. But people were ignorant to it. And they were ignorant to why. So when they were presented with this concept of, look, why should, the if you're a Texan, why should all those guys in Austin, that, that group of legislature in Austin, appoint your senator for you? Why shouldn't you, Mr. Spierko, cast one vote as one man the way it was really intended to be? And Why don't you get to decide who goes to Washington for you? And that sounds so good. But here's the reality. If you want to change out a state senator today, it is a very difficult thing to do. The reelection of incumbent percentage is huge. It's massive. Because it requires a statewide consensus to get it done. And it always seems to be tied to dragging along with presidential coattails, with elections, and, and things like that. But if you want to change a member of the state Senate or the state House, it's relatively easy to do. Because it's such a small geographic district. That's why it's easier to change a House of Representatives congressman than it is a state senator, or a federal senator from the state. Because you have to get the whole state's consensus to do this. But if you are ticked off at your house, your house rep, it's a very small geographic area compared to the whole state. A few thousand people can make the change, especially in the primaries. It's even easier, if you get a couple thousand people in the average state district, for your state rep or your state senator, you can you can change out anybody in the primaries. So, with that in mind, if people paid attention to this stuff like they did when they originally were handed this republic and voted at the state level and let the state legislature more directly reflect its people than the federal government ever could, then changing a senator is easy because if the senator is appointed by the state legislature, guess what else they can do? Recall them. So let's say the state of Texas is really, really upset, and our Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison is up in Washington, and they're about to vote on some immigration crap that we don't want, and she's going to vote completely against the will of the people of Texas. Because of some sweetheart deal or some pork, something she thinks she's going to be able to, to buy us back with later on. Or because of some back, or whatever it is. And I'm not saying anything good or bad about Kay Bailey. She just is our senator. I'm using it as an example. She's about to do this. Like, I don't know, pulling away the funding from a fence. From the security fence she originally voted for. Yeah? Something like she really did. And the people in Texas are just angry. And they, instead of calling her office... They pick up the phone and they call the person closest to them. They're members of the Texas State Legislature. And they say, you better do something about this. If enough people get that call, they can actually recall that senator under the original system. And say, hold on. See, the state right was a second check against spending. Because Congress now, most powerful, originates the spending. Spending bill goes to the Senate. States have a problem with it states can now affect control of the Senate if they feel they have to. This is all the things that were done to prevent stuff like secession, to give people a legislative process. So there's a civics lesson there, but it has so much to do with our money, and let's go forward now and stick just to how the money works with this. So the House is supposed to be subject to the will of the people, and they, they originate all the spending. The Senate is supposed to have the ultimate check of the people by being controlled by the state legislature which are more beholden to the people who is more beholden to you your state senator, your state rep or your federal senator or your fe- your federal senators or your federal uh, house representative who can you get to easier? The one that lives down the road from you in your district, right? The one that doesn't go spend time in Washington that doesn't hang out in Europe. The one that basically, at the, the rate of pay that most state legislators make, has to have a freaking job and work in your economy just like you. So that's supposed to be there. But then in 1913, here's what happened. Congress. Congress has three powers. I keep saying Congress. The congressman, the House, has three main powers when it comes to the money system. From the Constitution, they have the power to create the money supply and set the weight measures of it. So, in other words, the the, the United States Congress is the ones that can determine how the money gets made and what is back what, the, what backs the money. They also have the power to decide how the money gets spent because they control the checkbook. So you got a family, mom, dad, three kids, and dad's a big, strong guy, and he works really hard and everything else, and he is the head of the family. But mama, if mama has the checkbook, who really is the head of the family? If they don't have a, you know, I think you should have joint control and stuff like that, and should discuss things, and everybody should be an equal partner in a good marriage. These are people that keep, you know, I keep my money and she keeps hers. That ain't gonna help you in a divorce if you think it is. It's all community property anyway. If I don't trust you with my money, I'm not going to marry you, but I'll leave that alone. But my point is, when one spouse controls the checkbook, she controls family or he controls family. And There's no way around it, and that is our Congress. They're supposed to have that power. And the last was that no law could be passed without Congress. So, in 1913, they gave away a third of that power. They gave away a third of it. The most awesome power bestowed in our government First, to be a check on any law. No law is going to get to the President for execution without cooperation of at least 50% of the House of Representatives. The people most beholden to the people. That is still the case today, though we don't hold it over their head the way that we should. The ability to originate spending and shut down any operation of government that the majority of the House decides the government's gone too far by controlling the spending. A power they still have, but seldom use, other than for partisan saber-rattling bullshit. And the most awesome power, the ability to control the currency system itself. The ability to issue currency, regardless of how they chose to do it, with zero debt. And they gave it away. They gave it away. And in the same year that they did that, we took the ability of the states to recall their senators and act as a final check on this stuff away. And we told the people we're giving you more control and in return, they got less. Because again, I'll ask you, how much easier would it be for you to change the person that goes to your state capital than the person that goes to your federal capital? And in the old system, if you could change one, the other one became beholden to them. This all happened in one year, 1913. Now, Before we go forward, we have to talk about what money really is. We're going to get deep into this now. Here's the full promise being realized of all the things i promised you. We have to answer the question now, what is money? It's funny we've gone this long and haven't actually said what money is. Money is not gold and silver. It is not copper. It is not paper. It is not a stick. It is not a car. It is not any physical implement. No physical anything is really money. People that say, well, gold is money and everything else is just currency. And No, no. Money is an agreement between people. That's what money is. Anything that people agree to exchange for goods and services becomes money. It's public money when that is done at a national level. But money is nothing but an agreement. And no matter what's backing the money... If the people who have the agreement cease to agree that the money has value, it either becomes worth less or becomes worthless. So this is how this, this is part of inflation. I talked yesterday about monetary velocity, how fast money is spent. We have a collective agreement of the value of a $10 bill. When enough people are willing to part with that $10 bill easier than they were yesterday, and collectively we vote, by spending that $10 bill easier, its inherent value goes down. Now this might be tied to the monetary supply we talked about, but it doesn't have to be. If enough people have enough $10 bills and are willing to just spend them freely, its value declines. If people start looking at the $10 bill and collectively decide, I'm not taking the United States' dollars anymore, then the currency becomes worthless. It's all about by nothing more than our collective agreement. Now, if we back it with something other than debt, like, let's say, gold for now, we're going to get into why that can be as bad or worse, if we're not careful, it's less likely that we'll lose confidence in it. But not impossible. Especially if we start questioning whether gold's really there or not. But we could literally... Take a bunch of index cards and in different colors and put them into an economy and say whites are worth a dollar, yellows are worth $5, blues are worth $10, greens are worth 20 And if everybody agrees to that, that will flow and it will work as good as anything else out there. Now, it is far more likely to reach a point where we lose confidence in it faster, but it's still money while it's functioning. Money is nothing but a collective agreement. We have to understand that to go forward. So hopefully we do now. Money, collective agreement between people to assign value to something. That's it. So let's create a barter economy right now. Let's create, you know, we're going to have a little mini economy. A great big giant swap meet. A swap meet like, you know, where people bring in... Food and and goods and everything, but mostly secondary goods. In other words, used stuff that's been reclaimed through salvage and the the like. And things that they make themselves, things that don't have a high dollar cost against them. So it makes it easy for them to participate in 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 an economy like this. Some of are food that they've grown themselves or eggs from chickens in their backyard. What's the real cost of that? Especially if I get my feed from the guy in the next stall to swap me. And we decide in the middle of that economy, we are going to create a barter economy. So, And we're not talking about a big thing here. We're talking about something that maybe there's a thousand booths offering goods at. And even more people that don't sell stuff just walking around and purchasing. And in this establishment, people are using United States dollars to do business today. And someone comes into this and says, let's do this. Let's create a private currency for use here at the swap meet that every vendor will agree to a set value on, and that way we can go off-grid financially. All right? And everybody says, that sounds like a good idea, and they start looking at the things that everybody sells, and they start with U.S. dollars as as kind of a, a standard to measure against for a beginning, because we got to have something. So then we understand that if we have, uh, it, we cost us a dollar for a bundle bunch of carrots, and it costs us $2 for this guy down the the way from me that's selling a bundle of corn, that we need a currency that can work for that. So that if I went to him and I bought two bundles of carrots, he could take that currency, and if he wanted corn, go down and buy the corn, or any other item at this place. It's actually not that difficult to do, as long as we can get a collective agreement of the people there to take as soon as they'll take the currency, the public coming in to purchase that is the, the third party will use it. They won't take they won't even question it if the guy says, I'll give you this in change, and the guy says, I don't want this in change, if you say you can go right anywhere here and spend that just like dollars. First time eh, I don't know. When he sees a guy when he sees a guy right next to him pay the same guy with the same currency and he looks down and everybody's using it Oh, well, okay, fine, I'll I'll do that. That's, that's cool. And all of a sudden, this currency starts to flow. But if we're going to make that work, there's certain characteristics that that currency must have for it to be functional and have longevity. Number one, its total quantity must be limited. We can't put in that environment $2 million worth of currency into it because eventually it'll start flowing too freely, it'll run away to inflation, that'll lead to a lack of confidence in the currency, and it'll collapse. Makes sense? We cannot have an unlimited supply of currency in that system. There has to be a cap. We have to look at it and say, the entire value of this economy, on average, is $100,000. That means that if somebody walked in here, uh, or, or ten. 10 you know, a million dollars, whatever it is, and said, I want to buy everything that every vendor is selling right now and take it away. I want to clean out every booth, and we said, what's the monetary value of that, That it was a million dollars? Then that's the absolute maximum that we want of currency in circulation. And we probably want less, because competing currency, U.S. dollars is still coming in and going out, right, with an exchange ratio. So we definitely have to have a cap, and it has to be tied to an actual value of something, The next one is the expansion of the supply must be possible. So even though we're going to cap it, if there's a 1,000 vendors today and our swap meet starts to grow, and two years from now there's 2,000, we need more currency. So even though we cap it, we have to be able to produce more and bring more into the system. All right? The next thing is it has to be durable. We couldn't use Kleenex. You know? There's colored Kleenexes now, right? So we have yellow and white. We can't use that because you put it in your pocket, it crumbles up, it, it breaks down. It has to be something that's going to last. Even if you look at money, money's made out of paper. You know, U.S. dollars, 5s, 10s, 20s, what have you. But it's very durable paper. I mean, I've seen dollars that are, you know, 25 years old and barely hung together. You can still tell what it is. Any currency has to be d- d- uh, durable. It has to be divisible. It has to be able to be broken up into parts. Currency can't exist just as one big block. Right? We have to be able to make change. Alright, so we have to have something that's divisible. We have to have it be backed by some intrinsic value. That doesn't mean it has to be backed by gold. It has to be backed by something. In the case of our swap meet, it's backed by the goods and services being offered at the swap meet. So that I can exchange it For other goods and services. That's where its value comes from. God, this is important. Please get this. The fact that I can go to one stall and buy something and get change in our fictional currency and go to another and buy something else with the same fictional currency is where the value comes from. As long as that's the case, and as long as there's not enough of the fictional currency for me to buy everything and be left over with tons of currency, everything still works. Okay, But it has to be exchangeable that way. It has to be backed by an intrinsic value. But it doesn't have to be mean that if we're going to do a million dollar economy in our little barter network, that there has to be a million dollars worth of gold sitting against it. Because effectively, we have nothing but U.S. dollars then. The gold is exchangeable in U.S. dollars. The gold is what backs our currency. So if gold goes up, our currency becomes stronger in relation to the dollar. If gold goes down, it becomes weaker in relation to the dollar. All we have is a pseudonym for dollars. If we want our individual own currency, it has to leave being tied to the dollar. It has to float against it independently. And it has to be tied to the intrinsic value of the economy itself. Now, if we have a million dollars worth of gold... We have additional backing of that currency and it gives it more stability and if I can go exchange it for gold I have even more confidence in it but you understand what I'm saying. It can't just be that well there's gold there. Not if the currency is going to reflect the value of the economy. It also has to have a greater face value than its physical worth. I think a lot of people look at it this way. Uh, we should be able to take a, a one-ounce piece of silver and say that it's worth whatever silver's worth that day. So if I go to you in a booth at, at, a, at a, a trade market and I say, what are you selling those uh, handmade uh, knives for? And you say, I sell this knife for $50. In my barter economy, let's say silver was trading at $25 an ounce that day. Well, I should just give you two ounces of silver and we're good. That works fine if you're willing to take silver based on the U.S. dollar. But it doesn't work in our barter economy. Because let's say that the numeric value of that silver coin is $25 a day. Silver's worth $25. And that's floating around in our economy. Everybody's happy. I can go out and spend my my $25 piece of silver for $25. It's exactly the same as everywhere else. And it's private, it's independent, it's, it's, it's off the books, so to speak. I like my private economy this way. What happens when silver goes to $35 an ounce? If we keep the number on the one-ounce silver coin, $25? People go into the economy, they do business, they harvest the $25 coin, they go out to the external economy, and they cash it in for $35. And eventually all the currency is pulled out of circulation and the economy goes into deflation and eventually our little barter economy falls apart. So it's not necessarily a bad thing when we look at a United States quarter today and say that its intrinsic melt value is only, you know, two cents. Because if its intrinsic worth value was $3 like a silver quarter, there wouldn't be any quarters in circulation. This is Gresham's law. So if we're going to build a currency, we can't make it out of a substance that makes the physical implement itself worth more than the currency is in the economy. It can't be done. It will not work. Right now, people in mass, including me, are going to banks, buying pennies and going through them and taking everything that's a pre-82 and putting them in a jar somewhere. Why? They're worth two and a half cents. Now, people will do it for two and a half cents, What will they do for a dollar, or two, or three, or four, or more, per unit? A currency cannot have a physical value of the unit currency itself that exceeds its value in its economy, where it will be stripped from the economy and exchanged. It also has to be difficult or impractical to counterfeit. If you could easily counterfeit... The problem with our index cards... White, yellow, not to mention they're not very durable. But let's say we laminated them. We took a sticker. We put a 1 on the whites and a and a 5 on the blues and a 20 on the greens. We laminated them. And we made that a script. We put that in our economy. Problem is, anybody can go out and make a million dollars worth of currency for our economy for a couple thousand dollars. Too easy to counterfeit. Now, it pretty much works with everything else that we've said, except we lose pro- the primary... The thing we have to have is a total cap on the quantity. The big problem with counterfeiters isn't that they cheat. It's that they ruin the confidence and the quantity of currency. If I can make a new million dollars and dump it into the economy counterfeit-wise, people start questioning, the is this, is this $5 bill real or not? And I created infla- false inflation because I'm increasing the monetary base artificially. I've lost control. So it has to be. The other thing is, if you if you do what I just said, if we take a one ounce piece of silver and we make it worth fifty in our barter economy, and it costs you, you know, twenty seven dollars to make one of them, it becomes somewhat impractical. What you're, you're more likely to do is just purchase it. And then bring it into the economy. And if we take silver in the economy, as our, our, we don't care. Because it's real. It's impractical for counterfeiting. It costs too much. Why do you think nobody counterfeits coins? Let me put it to you another way. If there's not enough value that you can gain with the use of a currency, it's not worth counterfeiting. How many times have you gone to a store, pulled out two or three $1 bills to buy a small purchase, and had the convenience store clerk take the $1 bill, put it down on the thing, and draw a marker thing on it to see if it's real? Probably never, unless the guy's got a mental problem. How many times does it happen if you've ever spent a 50 or a 100? They always do it. Why? There's an incentive to counterfeit a $50 bill. So we have to make it impractical for counterfeiting. It has to be able to be exchanged for goods and services. Without that, it's nothing. So everybody in the economy must agree to it. We've already said that when we said to find money. We also... Have to make it convertible into external currencies if it's going to be useful outside the economy. And this is where we really learn something. If we're running our little swap meat market and people are using it for purchasing things that they use in their lives like food and, and, and novelties and things like that and it's only a, po- they don't have to pay their rent with it. They don't have to pay their taxes with it. They don't have to make their car payment with it, and they're only using that currency for a specific application, and therefore they're going to limit how much of that currency they're going to accept, that economy is going to run just fine. If we want that economy to grow to something like a state or a national level, then that currency must be exchangeable into an external currency. For the United see for our little swap meet to work, it's fine. But if you if I want to hire you to work my booth for me, and that's going to be your full-time job, and I'm going to pay you in swap meet script, you're not going to take that job. You can't. Because your landlord or your bank won't take that script as payment against your mortgage. And your government won't take it as payment for your income taxes. Now, on a national level, for this, see, now all of it should start to gel for you. On a national level, if we can't spend money and buy stuff from France or Germany or Japan or China with the U.S. currency, if it won't exchange outside of our economy, our economy is limited to the borders of the United States, not the globe. So we can't import anything and we can't export anything. So the currency, to to grow beyond the initial economy must have some intrinsic worth that is recognized by outside sources. And our swap meet's not going to pull it off. So, to do this in our swap meet, we would be wise to make our money out of, let's say, copper, gold, and silver. Just like Rob does at American Open Exchange Currency. Because even a copper coin that we say is worth two bucks, maybe it has an underlying value of 50 cents. But there's an underlying value. So now, I, can't, I still can't scale up. To a place where I'm paying people, you know, completely in this internal economy. Maybe with silver I can. Right? Maybe it's a selective use. Maybe the currencies compete with each other. Because now I can go out and I can exchange all that money to buy the things outside the economy that I have to buy. And the more the economy can provide for me, and the less I need the external economy, the more I can accept. The less the economy can provide for me, the more I need to be able to exchange it. That's how our money works today. Without the ability to exchange it, we're screwed. Because now we can't buy from anybody, and we really kind of can't sell to anybody. It's a little easier, but we still kind of can't. So there would be zero importation. And those of you that think we should buy American, build American, that's fine. Except for all the stuff we don't have and we don't make. You know? So we to, to be able to do business in the world, we learned from our local barter economy that we're building that we have to be able to create an exchange rate. So that's why most barter economies use things like silver. Because there's an exchange. There's an inherent value to the silver. Now, eventually, I might let my economy kind of float away from the dollar or give it large blocks that it can float. I'll rebase my currency when silver goes from 25 to 50. it will have to double before I rebase it. But I'll always have to make sure that the face value of my barter currency exceeds its underlying value, or people will strip it out. But I'll also have to make sure that if I want my economy to be bigger than just a tiny little barter exchange, that people can take that currency outside, or it's not that it won't work, but I'll limit my economy, which not necessarily for a barter economy is bad, but for a national currency, cannot be the case. And it also has to have the confidence of its users. That's the final thing. Users have to believe in it. The collective agreement must exist. That's it. That will make a barter currency work. And now you should have such a much greater understanding of what it takes to make a national currency work. It's like studying Latin, and you'll better understand the structure of the English language. Now, how would we fix our current monetary system? I'm going to tell you right now that a gold, a gold standard alone is not the answer, and perhaps it's no answer at all. problem with a gold standard today is that, number one, how much gold do we have? How much gold do we still have as a nation? Number two, remember how we based our barter economy. We said one of the ways we can put a cap on the amount of currency in circulation of our barter economy is what would it cost if somebody came in here with U.S. dollars, Federal Reserve notes, and said, I want to buy everything everybody has, and that would be the total value of goods and services. If we came up with an average over six months as stuff flows through there, what the average economy is worth inside of there, we could cap our currency. And it would work. But what if they, they did have a little treasury set aside of gold in reserves? But that gold only represents 10% of the value of the economy that's out there to be, to be bartered with. Well, in our barter economy, there's still outside money coming in and out, so maybe it still works, but if the reserve number's too low, it shuts it down, and at a national level, it completely kills it, because we don't have the outside money. People aren't walking in with Canadian dollars and Mexican pesos every single day and using them in our economy, nor do we want them to. We want stability in the nation. So, if we have a gold standard, what, what did I tell you the worth of our money really comes from yesterday? It comes from all of our land, all of our people, all of our production, our oil reserves, our gas reserves, our coal reserves, our fresh water resources, our output, our economy, all this stuff. If somebody showed up and said, I want to buy America... Damn near trying to do it right now. But if they did, they said, I want, to, I want to buy everything. I want to write one check. And it was a magical world. We had a, a, a universal economy. You know, we were trading with Mars and Venus and, and star systems. So that we were small enough that somebody could actually physically buy the United States. Like buying a, a small city and changing it into a, a ranch. Which could be done. He could go buy a city. You realize that? Well, somebody came in and bought the country, how much would it cost? That's where our money's worth comes from—the full faith and credit of the American people. You know, it's it's it, 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 it's 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 nonsensical when they say it now because you know about the debt. But in reality, that's what gives our currency its value. So having gold in reserve and tying the reserves to the currency can work. It can certainly be one of the things that we use to put a cap on the monetary supply. Remember, our currency must have a cap. But if we just go to gold, in of itself, it's not the answer. Let me tell you how both ways, going to gold and going away from gold, have screwed over the people. Let's go back to Andrew Jackson to start this. Andrew Jackson took over the presidency and decided his main role as president would be to get rid of the central bank. By then, Congress had already advocated a lot of its authority, and the central bank was creating money instead of the Congress. And uh, that's, how, that's how far back this crap goes. Jackson was the 7th president, and he already had to throw them out. And he did do it. He managed to route them out. And we had a currency system at that time with gold backing. And as we move forward in time, Lincoln went even better. Lincoln completely divested the bankers. And during the war, created U.S. dollars that were backed by the full faith and credit of the American people. They were not backed by gold. We had a fiat currency under Lincoln, and it worked just fine. It was debt-free. The bankers could not control it. And I think my opinion is, and this is opinion, unlike most of what I've told you today, it's the main reason Lincoln was actually assassinated. It had nothing to do with uh, slavery and, and anything else you might think. It had to do with the fact that Lincoln created the greenback. Did you know the greenback was not backed by gold at all? It was a fiat currency. It was run by the United States government. And after Lincoln was gone, we were moved back to a gold standard. And then the bankers who wanted to get their teeth fully back into this began to do something. They began to buy up and hoard the gold. And as they did this, the money supply contracted down to the point where there was something stupid like $30 in, or $11, something in those in neighborhood. neighborhoods. A long time ago, still, it's not much money for every person. So it went from like being a $1000 per person in currency floating around to 10 or somewhere thereabouts. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's basically what happened. This created a currency crisis, massive deflation, and the bankers of course enriched themselves because they were able to continue to buy the gold with less and less money and basically wrench control back and install another version of the central bank. Flash forward past 1913, the Federal Reserve has now come in. We're into the 1930s, but we're on a gold standard. So now the, the, the Federal Reserve and the private bankers don't just have some control, they have full control. They have more control than they ever had as being a central bank, as the Federal Reserve. And we're in the middle of a, a depression, which they helped make worse, if not caused. And we are in a currency crisis again. There's not enough money out there. So Roosevelt, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve, decides we need to expand the money supply, and we can't do that with gold because there's not enough gold. So they seize all the people's gold and they exchange it for new dollars. And they give them, let's say it's a little bit more, but it was about 20 bucks per ounce. But gold effectively had gone up to being worth $35 an ounce, but it had been suppressed because a $20 gold piece was worth $20. People actually used to go to the store, pull a gold coin out of their pocket, and buy something worth $20 with it. But people knew this had gone away. So they passed a law that said you couldn't hoard gold. If you didn't turn your gold in, they would throw your ass in jail, and they damn well meant it. You were able to keep a few coins for collector purposes, and that was it. But you couldn't do business in gold anymore. They took your gold, they gave you 20 bucks, then they let the gold float up to its value, sold much of it to Europe to fund the rebuilding of the United States and eventually our wars at $35 an ounce. So in both times that we moved to gold and away from gold, both ways the American people got screwed. What's the common denominator? Private control of the public currency system. Interest on the debt. So what if gold's backing debt that we have to pay interest on? Who cares? So what did it used to say, pay you know, a do, you get a $20 bill, payable in gold. They like you take it to the bank and they'll give you $20 in gold. You can exchange your money for gold. Don't tell me you can't exchange your money for gold today. Phone up Apmex. Phone up Blanchard. Call Mary Beth Maidman over at Silver and Gold. They'll exchange your dollars for gold right now. Your money is exchangeable for gold. Now it wasn't for years because the right to own gold was taken away. People say there's no right to own gold, it's a privilege because it's not protected in the Constitution. Oh, mon frère. Oh, my God. What part of the, 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 you know, the omission of a right in the Constitution does not mean that it's not already a right? That unless we say you can't do something, you can. What part of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment do these people not understand that say stuff like this? But they did it. They violated our right to own gold for years. People think that Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971 completely. You see, even after all this happened with FDR, there was still some portion of our currency backed by gold. Gold was a check on the currency. Nixon wanted to expand it. That happened in 1971. But nothing really happened. Nothing really happened to the price of gold between 1971 and 75. It was a very minor move. When did gold run away? spike and then come back down to something reasonable and regain uh, stability and head forward to where we are today. 1975. 1975 was when we really came off the gold standard because once again, you could go out and buy it. And once dollars, because see, up until you could buy it, we had no way to know what gold really traded for in U.S. dollars. You can't know the value of something in U.S. dollars if U.S. dollars aren't spent on it. And as soon as it came loose, it came unglued. And dollars started getting turned into gold left and right. And then it went through a panic, and then it came to a point of stability. If you look at a a graph of gold prices, you'll see it from 75 up to about 82. And in, in the middle of the 80s, you'll see gold and silver run almost the same pattern, stabilize, and run a very concurrent rate against inflation all the way up till today. Where today we're in the speculating range again a little bit. Actually a lot. That's how it works, and that's how it did work. So we can't just say if we move to gold standard, we're going to fix everything. All that's going to happen if we move to a gold standard today and keep the Federal Reserve is your money's going to get devalued. You're going to go to the bank one day, and you're going to be a good little ant and you're going to have $100,000 in your bank. Right? Yeah, it's great. I got $100,000, man. Even though inflation sucks, I got $100,000 and bingo, they're going to make the change, they're going to rebase the currency, and you're going to go to your bank, and they're going to say, yeah, you have $55,000, or forty-five, but it ain't going to be a hundred anymore. And then we have to wait and see how much power money really has. How much deflation or strengthening of the currency is actually done by this. Or, they leave it where it is, and inflation goes nuts. Because all of a sudden, people realize... There won't be any more money, and they start hoarding it, and that creates deflation. Until people build it up, and then they let it go, and when they let it go, velocity increases. See, it can't be just a gold standard. And as long as a private entity controls it, it doesn't matter, because it's a gold standard that, it, that has debt, and a gold standard that's not accountable to the people. And a gold standard where the people holding the golden reserve don't have to show us how much gold they have. They don't have to show us because they have the right to just do what they want with the currency and just say, now we're backed by gold. How do we even know what they've done? Even if we take back the power going to a gold standard, how do we create enough money to run an economy with 330 million people with all of it being backed by gold? And how do we turn away and say, there's no value to our farmlands and the output of our farms. How do we turn away and say, there's no value to our coastal waters and the fish and the shrimp and the shellfish that come from them? How do we turn away and say there's no value to our timberlands? How do we turn away and say there's no value to the person with a little lathe that makes little tools and sells them into our economy and around the world? How do we say that there's no value to our entertainment system, that people spend their money on willingly? How do we say that the only value of our nation lies in a vault and a hole in the ground in Fort Knox? Or to pull this off... All over the world, we'd, 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 we'd be twenty Fort Knoxes or more. They have enough dollars if they're going to be backed by gold. Now, Congress can set, set the weights and measures. They can decide that one U.S. dollar is represented by two thousand uh, by an ounce of uh, one dollar, or let's say um, a one, out, one ounce of gold is worth five thousand dollars if they want to. But you also have to look at this. If we just have a gold standard, what happens when the Chinese and the Russians decide together we want to economically cripple the United States? All they do is manipulate the price of gold. And they can screw with our currency all day long. Gold can be a piece. So what I, the, the way to fix this is Congress has to take the power back. Federal Reserve has to go. And then here's the big objection. And I've never had the answer till now. Is I've examined private currencies. I've learned the answer the objection that people always bring up to this and Mike Gazer brought this up on the show and I really didn't have an answer for it if we let the congressman create the currency the way those guys spend money every time they want something they're just gonna make more money how do we control their creation of the currency we put a cap on it we put a cap on it we have the there's, we take a mathematical formula. That locks the value of the nation based on its reserves and its production, its output, and its population. We come up with that. We look historically where the money, where it was, and when the nation was the most prosperous for a baseline, and we capped the money supply at that. And for the money supply to increase, that number has to increase. And that would create equilibrium. And then the Congress would not be able to borrow money into existence. And they would not be able to run a debt-based economy. And they would have to rein in the spending to be commensurate with the production of the nation. And the bankers get nothing. They get the ability to make loans for fair interest for large purchases. But they don't get to print money anymore they don't get to create money at will anymore. They get to fulfill the role that the banks are supposed to fulfill. I don't hate banks. I like them. Great relationship with my bank. I don't want them put out of business. But that's a small local bank that does its job. I'm not looking for the, 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 the ten biggest banks in the world to control my currency supply. It's your currency supply. It's my, that's how we fix the problem and that's the only way to fix the problem and now you know the way this works every single time somebody tells you we need to pay down the national debt it can't be done it can't happen the way things are you pay the debt down the currency contracts eventually when you need the economy to expand which is constantly the way it's set up you need to borrow more money when you borrow more money the currency expands and the debt goes up and the interest on the debt goes up it is an inescapable trap and again you have to ask yourself why were three changes that were earth shattering accomplished in nineteen thirteen? What would the equivalent be of that happening? Like I said, it would be it would be on the same day cap and tax, the old immigration bill, and the original health care bill, all on the same day. And the American people not storming Washington. Nobody did much about this. It was sold to them so well. There were crises created by hoarding gold, by creating currency shortages, by the people that wanted this to happen. It's not conspiracy theories. It's how it works. You can read history. You can see this for yourself. But our Constitution states very, very clearly that the responsibility for controlling our money from a budgetary standpoint and for creating our money and for setting... The mean, the, the, the weights and measures against the money is the responsibility of the United States House of Representatives. And they've ignored the authority they still had, and they gave away the most awesome authority that anybody could have ever given them the ability to create currency for this nation that was debt free. It's unbelievable that that occurred. And there's people that say the Constitution states that we have to back our money with gold and silver. No, it does not. It doesn't. I'm not going to go into the state clause about states only using gold and silver. I've explained it before. What the Constitution actually says is that our government is responsible for the creation of the currency, setting weights and measures against whatever. And there's been times where we've had a fiat system and everything worked just fine. And there's been times when we've been on a system with gold backing and everything worked just fine. But there has never been a time where we have been under the control of private banks, where the nation's debt hasn't consistently increased, the amount of interest that we owe hasn't consistently increased, and the worth of the United States hasn't been transferred from the hands of many to the hands of a few. So that's the only way we're gonna fix it, is to make our government take back its constitutional authority. And the way we answer the question about, well, if we let the congressman create the money, how do we, was we put a cap on it. And we tie that cap to a number that can't be faked. We put population, yes, we put, gold is in there. Silver is in there. But as a factor in the equation, not the only equation. That way we're not susceptible to manipulation of our currency by foreign governments. And that way we don't ignore the amount of value in our our country that vastly outweighs any amount of gold that anybody could ever store. There's not enough gold in the world to represent the full value of the United States of America. So let's shift gears now and talk about what you do and wrap things up. Number one, be informed, be educated, and be a polite evangelist. Most people that wake up to this stuff turn into obnoxious people initially. They start telling people, like, your money's worthless. You just don't understand. And, I mean, if you look at forums about these topics about, you know, the currency system and fiat and stuff. There's absolute statements made by people that really don't understand what they're saying. They don't know any of the things that we've talked about today. They don't understand why we can't just go to a singular solution. And they don't understand that the problem isn't about the currency, whether it's being created by order or by a backing of a piece of metal, but that that who's controlling it is the real problem. And the fact that we'll always be beholden to them. And then when they wake up to that, people get what I call a messiah syndrome. Right When they learn something new, they go out and they start trying to um, force it on other people. So yeah, you need to tell other people about this, but you need to do it in very polite ways. We're going to give you some ways to do that. That's why we're doing the AOCS Copper Rounds. On the back of those is going to be a domain name to a website, where everything I've told you in these two episodes is going to be in print, in a PDF download where people can go and learn about this on their own. And it's going to give them resources to other places where they can learn more, like Chris Martin's Crash Course, like uh, Bill Stills' The Secret of Oz, and all of these other great resources that actually educate people to these underlying things. So be educated and keep learning. I haven't told you everything you need to know. You now have, This is like learning fundamental mathematics. Now you can use the fundamental mathematics to solve problems. Use the fundamental knowledge of our currency system to solve problems. Notice I didn't tell you exactly what we should do. I gave you my idea for how a new currency could work. But I have faith in the in the process that was set up by our founders that if we actually took control again as people, we'd come up with a solution that wouldn't look 100% like mine, it wouldn't look 100% like yours, but it would work a hell of a lot better and would free our nation of debt. So we have to understand that our money supply is not about politics. It's not about what we spend the money on, but about where the money comes from and how the money is controlled. So when you're talking to people about this stuff, avoid things like, well, the Congress spent $9 million on a turtle tunnel. That that is stupid. It is wasteful. But why did they have the ability to do it? Because of a debt-based economy. If we take away the debt-based economy... You better explain to the people that elected you why we need a $9 million turtle tunnel. Because it's real money. And we won't have them. So leave the politics out. And don't try to talk like you're smarter than other people. I, I know most of you won't. But I have to say it because I see it, especially in online forums. I also want you to do this. You need to accept that the current system is going to change. Because it has changed more times than we realize. You know, it changed in '33. It changed again in the '50s. It changed again in '71. We're on a pretty long streak here with the way it is now, exactly. But we can't know how. We don't know if the next time it changes because the people are going to uprise and, and, and put us back to an honest public f- currency and get rid of the Federal Reserve. And don't bet on it. We don't know if they're going to go to a gold-based economy or a commodity-based economy or a resource-based economy. Or whatever other crap they come up with. We don't know if they're going to re-implement some level of a metallic standard. We don't know what they're going to do next. We have to pay attention. We have to make the best guesses for ourselves going forward. We also have to have an obligation, I feel, to exist outside the system where we can. If I have an opportunity to do business with barter, I'm going to do it. I can't do it all the time. There's a limit to it. You know? I can't take only AOCS currency and say that's the only thing I'm gonna do for members brigade. You know, one silver medallion with a 50 on it pays for your year. Because I have to, I, I have to pay my mortgage. Right? And even when I don't have my mortgage, I gotta pay for, I gotta pay for stuff. And so do you. So none of us can take 100% barter. But we can sure do it wherever we can. And I think we have an obligation to exist outside the current system wherever we can. Because every time we do that, we weaken the system. We don't give them the ability to create another dollar out of thin air every single time. And if everybody does a little bit, its impact starts to add up. And the beauty of the more we can do with a barter system, the more it's like studying Latin. When you're first studying it, it seems boring and pointless. But later in life, when you go back and you're structuring something you're writing in English, you start to understand it better. And that's how barter currencies work. They're more about an education process to the general public to understand how currencies should work. And understand that the absolute statements made by people that want to sell you something are nonsensical. And the absolute statements by people that want the system to just stay the way that it is so they can manipulate you are nonsensical. And they start to ask why and how. And that scares the establishment. So exist outside the system when you can. And understand this may never change. Not that it won't change in some way, shape, or form. We may never get back what was given away. Once a power is relinquished, reclaiming it is so difficult. Every congressman would be bought and paid for in a million ways the second they started to move against us. It would take people of incredible fortitude... To rout out the Federal Reserve, we would need another Andrew Jackson. In fact, we would need not just one of them. We would need hundreds of them, you know, fifty or so in the Senate and three hundred and fifty in the House or so that would stand in the face of this and say, "No, we're going to make this go away." So it may not happen. So that what that means is that the consequences of this ignorance will eventually become evident. And we will go into a period of either dark deflation or hyperinflation or one will precede the other. And this economic system will eventually have to fall apart. And that means that you build your personal economy on value. That's why I say base your investments on not just your 401k plan. Your cash, yes, but it's only one part. The tools that will last you for the rest of your life. The vehicles that will last you for a long portion of your life that you don't owe money on. A home that's paid for. A productive system. Metal, yes, but it's a piece. 5, percent of your wealth, fine. But understand that when you're building a wealth portfolio, that there's always something someone can do, or always a way that society can shift that can devalue any piece of it. Your land can be devalued. Your tools can be devalued. Your gold can be devalued. Your silver can be devalued. Your cash can be devalued. But economic systems are systems, like an ecosystem. And they work within each other to, with a point of interactivity that when you spread out wealth that way, in general, when one value in your internal economy contracts, another one expands. They reduce the value of your property, the value of gold goes up. To Reduce the value of your cash, the value of your gold goes up. Increase the value of your cash, the value of your gold goes down. But you create stability for yourself when you don't try to create, you know, a golden bullet solution or a silver bullet solution or a land based solution. You keep diversity in your own life. But pay attention I know today went long, even, and she's, this is why I cut it off at an hour yesterday. We're, we're probably, what, an hour and 17 minutes now, something like that. But I am done. And there you have it. Right now, you might even have to listen to this again to really get it all in, to take it all in, but you know more about money than 99% of all Americans with college degrees. You know more about money than a lot of people with economics and finance degrees. Because they learn how to work the system that's established. They don't learn the flaws in that system. They don't learn where that system came from. And they don't learn what the real system is supposed to be all about. You now know. So make it part of your decision-making process. Make it part of, when I'm going to bring value into myself, I I want diversity in my value. And I want value that's independent of the system. If I own my home and I own my land and it produces for me, provides me shelter, provides me comfort, provides me happiness, provides me food, I don't really care what its dollar value is if I don't want to move. You have to start thinking that way. You have to start looking out for yourself. Because I'd love to tell you I know what's coming next. I do not know what's coming next. I won't pretend to, and you don't either, and never trust anybody that says they do. I can tell you what I think is going to happen short and long term, but the exact process, the exact way, and exactly how to make sure that you take the greatest advantage of it, I can't tell you. I can tell you, with a common sense approach, it's not necessarily that you're going to make a fortune on it when it occurs, but you won't let it hurt you. And I do not the profit podcast, but the survival podcast. The information I've given you today will help you with your economic and financial survival going forward. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. forget, we are what we eat.